Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. The Bible reading this morning will be taken from the book of Colossians, the letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. After the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. Colossians, chapter 1, 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bola. And good morning, church. Um, if you're here for the first time, uh, don't worry. We'll, at the end of the service, we'll acknowledge you and give you a couple of cards just so that you can get, uh, get some information about you. But if you're here for the first time, we're happy to have you. Thanks for joining us in this worship service. Um, we are continuing in our series called Rooted and Built Up, our study of the book of Colossians. Um, particularly today, we'll be looking at uh, something that has to do with the goal of the ministry, maturity in Christ. I'll give some more details as we go along. Some more details as we go along. But before we kick off, I'd like to show just a quick, uh, it's a workplace video uh, that brings some clarity, where some people are seeking clarity as to the confusion about the co-worker's uh, status. Uh, apologies for about two choice words in there, but please, let's watch the video. What you do at Inatech is you take the specifications from the customers and you bring them down to the software engineers. Yes, y yes, that's, that's right. Well, then I just have to ask, why couldn't the customers just take them directly to the, to the software people, huh? Well, uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, because engineers are not good at dealing with customers. Uh -huh. So you physically take the specs from the customer? Well, no, my, my secretary does that, or the facts. Huh. So then you must physically bring them to the software people? Well, no. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Uh, what, what would you say you do here? Well, look, I already told you. 
I deal with the goddamn customers so the engineers don't have to. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand it? What the hell is wrong with you people? All right. I hope your people skills are better than his. <laughs> so the question is, what does he do around there? And nobody seems to know. Now, if this, uh, this sermon might serve to explain uh, maybe some things about, you've asked your question, what do ministers really do? What does God say, you know, people who are in ministry? What are they actually here uh, doing uh, for us or within the organization called the church? The passage that was read by Bola this morning starts out with three really, you know, stunning statements of a servant's identity. Whereas, in our, maybe in our day and age, the way we think about ministers of the gospel, people who call themselves men of God, those terms are, you know, people that you convey images of people that are larger than life, people who have some authority or something they derive, they say from God, and um, and they live larger than you know, you know, you sort of expect them to. But when a minister or someone else who calls himself a minister in the Bible uh, tells us and the church about what it means to be a minister, he uses three uh, statements of uh, a servant's identity. So in Colossians 1.24b, he says uh, about the church, I have become the church's servant. I'm a servant of the church, Paul says. In Colossians 1.23b, just a verse before that, he says, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So Paul says, I'm a servant of the church, but I'm also a servant of the gospel. And he, say, he continues in 25a, he says, I'm a servant by God's commission. Servant of the church, servant of, of the gospel, servant commissioned by, uh, uh, servant by God's commission, is stewardship essentially given to me by God for your sake, for your sake. And so Paul continues to drive on this point about the immediate goal of what it means to be a minister, his immediate goal as a minister who has a stewardship from God. In verse 25b, he says, to present the word of God in fullness, the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his sins. So the word of God in its fullness is also the mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations. It's like, and this mystery is, Paul is saying, God has only just given us permission to reveal it uh, in the church. Previous generations wanted to know about this. There's a portion of scripture that says, you know, the prophets who prophesied about the suffering of Jesus Christ and, you know, and the things that would follow, they appeared very close to trying to figure out what, they, what it really meant. I said it wasn't for them. That even angels longed to look into these things. And this is the mystery that is revealed to us um, the body of Christ, the saints of God. So, and what is this? It says, the word of God, the gospel ministry, or gospel mystery, is that God's salvation plan is inclusive of his former enemies. That Gentiles, former enemies, as well as believing Jews of Israel, are part of this great, magnificent, eternal glorification plan. If Christ is the focus of the gospel, the scope of the gospel is all of humanity. Whereas before we saw in the Bible a strain, a sliver of humanity from Abraham all the way down to, the, to Israel, to Jacob, to the nation of Israel, he says, don't get it wrong. It was never about this small group of people, no matter what it appeared like. It is all of humanity in its scope. It's an inclusive mystery. Ephesians 3.6 says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heads together with Israel, Members of one body shares in the promise of Christ. 
Ephesians 2.12 says, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of, of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in this world. You were excluded, you were aliens. And I think Femi spoke extensively about that last week in, uh, in Colossians 1.21. Right? So we were outside, but now we've been reconciled. I don't know about you. When I was reading the Bible growing up and I saw Gentiles, I always thought I was the lineage of the Jews. You know, I always thought I grew up in a church, you know, I'm not perfect, but, you know, we were the Jews. And those, those pagans, those, those Gentiles, right? So I don't know who, who here identifies as a Gentile. Who here identifies as a Gentile? When you read the Bible, you identify as a Gentile. Who identifies as a Jews? Yeah, yeah, you know, especially my, my, my Igbo brothers. Igbo Kwenu. The descendants, the African descendants of the Jews, right? When you and I, when you, Nanke, Gentile, when you and I were in one naughty corner, the, the ancestors of the Igbos, right, they had invitation card to New Moon Festival, to New Yam Festival, and all the other festivals that were available. They're looking at me. New Yam is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. They had access to God. They had access to his blessings, his provisions, his power, you know, the nations were jealous. You know, they, you know, blessed is the nation whose Lord, who, uh, whose God is the Lord. And the nations knew all that and they feared Israel and they were jealous of him. But now he says, we are part of that group. So that's the mystery. The mystery that we, who were former aliens and Gentiles, were part of this glorious future. But we see Paul then talks about this immensely valuable benefit. He calls it the glorious riches of the mystery. So there's the mystery, right, our inclusion, and then there's the glorious riches of the mysteries. This thing, there's something about this mystery that is so wonderful that Paul, Paul, Paul is excited about, and he says the glorious feature of weaving part of this great move of God is that Christ indwells us. And he indwells us so that we may have hope, confident assurance that we will participate in the future. So if you're a Jew, you may look at your lineage, you may look at your ownership of the Lord and say, yeah, you know, God is not going to abandon me. <laughs> and if, I'm, if I put my faith, you know, I'm going to make it to heaven, right? And if you're a Gentile, your past record doesn't, very, doesn't speak very well. It's not very encouraging. You know, my father was, an, my grandfather was an idol worshiper. My father was an idol worshiper. And who am I that God would count me as part of his people? So he says, he puts Christ in you, Right? as the hope and the assurance that you will participate in God's future glorification. And so these Gentiles who are privileged and excluded, we get to have God. We get, have access to him and in them. And of that future glory, we read in Revelations 18. Let's take a little peek at that future that uh, uh, Paul is talking about. Uh, I read from Revelations 18, 4 to 7. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. So, so this is a time where everything is coming to an end, right? All the, the storyline of earth, storyline of heavens and the universe is culminating. Uh, Satan's been destroyed. The dragon, the false prophet, they've been thrown into the, the lake of fire. Death and hell themselves have been thrown into the lake of fire. God is going to be all in all. The 24 hours, the divine council, the angelic, everybody comes around and they're bowing to the lordship of, of, of Yahweh. Amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, 
like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. He finally reigns. No controversy. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. So we're here to give this almighty God who has conquered all, we're here to give him glory. The whole universe and this multitude of, uh, hopefully, you and I. He then says, why are we giving him glory? Why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That glorification of God, that God being all in all, is actually linked to so this is what God has been. When, he, when the angels were rebelling and he was casting them down and when he was sending Michael to deliver Israel and when he was doing all this work and perfecting, the, all, all, of, all the struggle, all this cosmic struggle was coming to this end. That God will be praised because the bride has made herself ready. And it will be presented to the groom and the wedding feast will start. This is truly mind-blowing stuff. And so what we're looking at today is between the time you are converted, your conversion, when you became a Christian, and this glorious future that Paul says is waiting for the bride of Christ, anyone who makes themselves ready, what are we going to be doing? What is the real job of ministers like Paul and Peter, those who connect customer service to the engineers? What is their real job? What, what do they really do around here? Have anybody ever, has anybody ever wondered, what does Femi really do? Have you ever visited a church office? Have you wondered, what does, what does he do? Every, what, does, what, does, what does Pelumi do? What does, what's your name? Emmanuel, what do you do around here, by the way? <laughs> right? If you ever want anybody who holds himself as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do they do? And we're going to examine um, the title again, the goal of the ministry, which is maturity in Christ. We're going to examine that under three headings. The goal of the ministry, we're going to look at what maturity is. We're going to look at the tasks of the, minister, of the ministry, and then we're going to look at the nature of the minister. And so I'll go to my first point. In Colossians 1.28, it says very clearly, go straight to the point, so that, so the reason why we preach, admonish, we teach with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Fully mature in Christ. Now, in our secular world, we understand what maturity is. If you, if you live, you know, you're in your 20s, you've heard be mature. You've, had, you've heard admonitions to be mature. And it simply talks about a measure of your progress from infanthood to self-regulating, self-managing adulthood. Maturity is typically associated with age, right? With accumulated experience, with some form of steady performance in some task or wise judgment. Say so this person is mature. We essentially take an adult and we say, and we're saying, how much do you and I, how much do we act as an adult? What an adult is expected to act like in your in intellectual ruminations, in your emotional responses, in the responsibilities you accept and the duties you carry out, right? There's a measure of an adult. How do you and I, do we measure up? That's how the world looks at this. It talks about how, or it tries to figure out how we orient to work versus the urge to play all the time. How, whether we are... We have a long view of life, of our finances, for example, and how we manage our finances, or whether we're impulsive. So if somebody's not, is not mature financially because they take, get money and they do what? Boom, blow it, right? It talks about whether you can switch from being playful and silly to whether to be serious. And, and we use that to measure our children, right? If my daughter is playing and then she's, uh, she strays on the road or she's holding a knife or is going to electrical socket, whatever, and I said, Moyo, come here. You know, and she's, ah! 
study you. My mind, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, especially from the sound, I'm thinking, you know, you, your, your voice, your tone changes, your face changes. You're thinking, this is trouble. If my child does not know how to switch, that, or when I've switched from playing to being serious, we're in trouble. She is going to be in trouble, right? And hopefully, as I continue to teach her what it means uh, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I call her, when I uh, call her to attention, she will learn to do that more and more. And so many other markers that we use as children grow up to say they're grown. And children sometimes will sometimes act mature, but they're not yet mature, right? They just they, they show flashes, and it's encouraging to us, and it's a blessing to us. But we're waiting for the time when they will consistently act in a certain way. Now, when we talk about Christian maturity, some people assume this is a purely, you know, it's a pure spiritual gift, you know, because when Elihu was speaking in, to, in, in Job 32, he said, there's a spirit that dwells in man. It's a spirit. And it's the spirit of God that gives what? Wisdom. And so we say, eh hey, hey. You know, wisdom is not, it's not from age. It doesn't come from age. It doesn't come, you know. And then when, when we see how, uh, how Yahweh gave those who formed the temple, those builders, he gave them the spirit of, you know, to do work, to do art, to, do, to, to carry out his instructions. We see a lot of places where the Holy Spirit seems to be empowering people with wisdom and to do certain things. And so we say, nah, you know, I don't think wisdom, you know, has any association with age. It's actually if you have the Spirit of God, the gifts of the Spirit is really what makes uh, you wise. Because maturity is usually linked to wisdom or wise behavior. But Christian maturity actually encompasses the righteous use of the gift of the Spirit. Notice what I said, the righteous use of the gifts of the Spirit, right, using those gifts applying them to serve Jesus' own interests and not our selfish end. So we can have, and this is the reason why you can have ministers or servants who are gifted because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance because all of us who are called to Christ have one gift or the other. You can have people who demonstrate one gift or another, but yet we wouldn't recommend you know, that you'd follow them completely because they either do not use those gifts to serve Christ or they're using it extensively to serve themselves. So we watch out for that. So, when we, Christian maturity is fully expressed, is fully seen in terms of both character and gifting. It is how we consistently express the character of Jesus Christ. How we fully express what we, the Bible refers to as, as the new man in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.13 refers to our reference point. Just as we look at a child or a growing person and we say the adult is the reference point, right? Our own standard, our own ultimate adult is who? The person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Ephesians 4.13 refers to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The passage we're looking at in Colossians 1 says, fully mature in Christ. And you can obviously see the connection. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Fully mature in Christ. And so the path that we take to maturity is one in which the new man is being expressed and the old man is being crucified, the old man of the sin nature, where the divine nature is being uh, uh, not only embraced but already also expressed in our lives and the sin nature is being uh, crucified. We're bearing, the Bible says, the fruit of the Spirit. Some places the Bible says we're bearing fruit of righteousness. Essentially, it is measuring how much of our intellect, how much of our planning, how much of our thinking, how much of our motivations, how much of our speech, how much of our actions are like Jesus? How much of it are we intentionally, sometimes subconsciously, 
submitting to the Lord. Mostly intentional. Before it becomes subconscious, it's what? Intentional. How much of it are we submitting to, to Jesus Christ? And when a fully mature person, or when, a, when we begin to see a fully mature life, we will see, first of all, an adoption of Jesus' own perspectives. Right? Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you, which was in who? In Christ Jesus. His attitudes, his motivations, his behavior. Right? We begin to, we begin to look more and more like him as we mature. And when we see people who are acting more and more like that, we say they're mature. By the way, in the past, what was, you know, what, you know in the past there was a word that used to be used for people who, act, who acted like Jesus Christ, who acted mature. What is that word? It was a label. Christian. Christian. The Christian did not refer to someone who merely professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you remember, that's not a word we give. That is not a label we give ourselves. That is a label the world gave, and it was a pejorative word. It was eh, just Christians trying to be like Jesus. So they saw people living in a pattern that conformed to the way either they saw or it was reported that Jesus lived. And these guys, they want to be like Jesus. They want to be like that fisherman, right? And they called them Christians. And we've lost, we've lost meaning of that. That word has lost its meaning. Now that word refers to anyone who says, I go to church or I'm a Christian. But I'll suggest that there are a couple of words that are still, uh, you know, that are, that are hard to mess with. So there's one particular word that uh, I, I learned a, a few years ago that um, when we have, was having some conversations about whether, you know, I'm saved. Is that brother, you know, is acting a certain way? Is he still saved? Has he backslidden? And am I still in the faith? You know, that, and, you know, and somebody said, you know, oh, that, that one, you're, 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 you're creating a lot of problems. You know the word the Bible uses that Jesus uses the most to describe his people? It's the word disciple. A disciple is, one, is what? One who follows. So we'll stop having, we should stop having conversations about when I had my conversion, whether, you know, I'm professing or not, you should be asking yourself, if you're evaluating yourself, am I, at this moment, today, am I following Jesus? If you have a brother or a sister and you're not sure, you know, you want to pray for them, you're not acting, you ask, is this person following Jesus? And if they're not, what is the solution? Is the solution across? You embrace the gospel. You repent or you hopefully get the person to repentance, you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And you receive your confidence, your assurance of salvation, right? If you've already had a, God, a conversion story, if you're not yet following, same thing, you repent, you come back and say, I trust in the gospel, and I continue to live my life before the Lord. We don't, we don't, we don't do this pretend thing that we do, where, where we, where, you know, five, ten, or whatever, how many years ago, I said something, but my life doesn't show anything of that. All right, so disciples of Christ. What begins to mark a disciple who is following, who is growing to maturity? Their attitudes have changed like we have seen. Their hearts are more inclined to obey the Lord. They value truth over lies or falsehood, no matter whether that makes them comfortable. You know, I don't like to admit I'm a bad person. So, you know, if, 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 I, if, if, um, you know, if, I, if I have a fight with my wife or I have a consistent way of behaving towards my wife and, you know, somebody calls me out on it or my wife calls me out on it, you know, I, you know, I really don't like being, thinking of myself as a bad husband and all that. And I do something nice, you know, and, and you're looking at me. Somewhere. And so you then comment, oh, nice way you treated me. I'm like, you see? 
She commended me on how I treat, I treat her. It's more comfortable for me to, you know, to take that one instance, right, and apply it to myself, and I ignore the other signs that I'm a bad husband. The heart that is growing embraces truth, values truth, even if that truth, when you look in the mirror, even if you don't like what you see in the mirror, it values truth over falsehood, no matter what it makes you comfortable. Addition to attitudinal changes, behavioral changes. You know, the life that looks at sexual impurity in all its various forms. We are surrounded, you know, you know the word they, they, used to, they used to use one word when I was on campus. And, you know, it, it, I didn't know the meaning of the word. They were so deep, you just need to run away from me. It was called evil concupiscence. <laughs> evil concupiscence. I didn't know what it meant. It just sounded terrible. Just run away from it, right? The heart that begins to run away from such sexual impurity and to embrace wholesomeness in speech, in thought, in action. You move from a life of covetousness where you just, you know, you're just the next thing that you acquire. Clothes, food, drink, drink cars, whatever it is. Your mind is just the next bag, the next shoe, the next house, whatever. You covet, you covet, you covet. And you move from there to what? Somebody says, the Bible says, let him who used to still do what? Steal no more. You covet, you steal. But the opposite of that, you know, the, you know that sentence doesn't, start, doesn't stop there. The opposite of a Christian that used to steal is not just to stop stealing. The Bible says what? Let him give generously. Let him work what is good with his hands and give generously. Because generosity is the sign that I've become detached from my love for material things. And your lack of generosity is an indication. No matter whether you can, you can see it, it is an indication that you are tied to material things. Where you used to be angry and vengeful, keeping malice, keeping bitterness, you can forbear. You can be patient with people who will offend you. Why? Because in your heart, you know, you know what it is Christ did for you. It's all centered around the gospel. And so Galatians 5.22 gives us uh, what is uh, a summary of all these characteristics of a maturing person. It says, love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, or loyalty to Jesus Christ. Loyalty to Jesus Christ. Gentleness, self-control. We become people who are noted for our kindness, for our goodness, for our compassion, and for our Christ-like forgiveness. And when you then move to the point where you are mature, you know, relatively mature, you are, you know, there's a sense of maturity where we're talking about stability. Doctrinally, you are stable. You are satisfied with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? You, are, you can delight in him. Christ is enough for me. I mean, not get other things in life. I'll keep working. I keep doing my work until I keep, do, I keep my hustle going. But Christ is enough for me. Fame, reputation, all those things. As long as I, I don't do anything to detract from the name of Christ, but I will stop seeking those things because Christ is enough for me. So I'm satisfied with the person of Lord Jesus Christ. I'm fully relying on his work for my emotional health, for the, the way I interact in all my relationships. I know his work is enough for me. I'm able to discern a bit of truth, understand what false teaching is about, because I have a good foundation. When you are settled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can know when somebody is trying to shift the goalpost, when somebody is trying to shift the foundation. Even if you, you don't have to know a lot of doctrine, but you know, no, 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 this does not accord with the gospel that I received. We are stable, we can discern, and more importantly, we love God's people. And we love them not because they are good, but because they are God's people. 
because they are God's people. And so, and last part is that, and probably, the, probably the, most, the most distinguishing mark of someone who is maturing, or who is mature, is that they stop, Christianity stops being like, uh, you, know, you, stop, you know when we ask questions like, um, uh, are you saying a Christian can't do that? Or, or um, can a Christian even do this one safe? You know, it's like, where is the line? Where, where did they draw the line? Let's, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can go, we get, we're not going to cross the line, but we'll get close to it. Right? It is a heart that wants to offer the barest minimum to the Lord Jesus Christ. The barest minimum. Instead, the opposite, Peter says, in addition to this, your strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, at your faith, goodness, your goodness, knowledge, your knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, to mutual affection, love. We're not doing bare minimums anymore. We're not asking, eh, you know, how far can I, how far, what can I get away with, essentially? What can I get away with without destroying the ministry, exposing my father's name to shame, uh, church discipline, uh, church, I'll just change church. Um, yeah, yeah, essentially, we stop acting and living like that. And Peter says in uh, verse 10 to 11, if you do all these things, if these things are found in you in increasing measure, he says you will never stumble. You will never stumble. But more than not stumbling, he says something uh, fantastic. You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see the correlation between the glorious future, the eternal kingdom, when the bride is getting, is, has made herself ready and is presented to the groom. He says, you're going to be part of that. You are going to be part of that great future. And not just, not just the bride meeting, ready bride meeting the groom. He says, you yourself will receive a rich welcome. All those shouts of glory, glory, glory. It's glory to God, but it's also rejoicing about what the saints are in the presence of God. And that brings me to my second point. The tasks of the ministry. So, uh, Colossians 1.28 says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So, what is the connection between this minister and, uh, and maturity? This, this status that we hope all Christians will attain and the work that the servant uh, of Jesus Christ does. Well, Paul says in 1.28a, Christ is the one we proclaim, we admonish, and we teach everyone with all wisdom. Now, this is not uh, an exhaustive list of all that a minister of Christ does, but this is, is, is maybe even 70 to 80% of what he does. So he preaches Christ. Preaching is about faithfully proclaiming and announcing the gospel of Jesus and all of its glorious implications. As he sees it in the word of God, he says it. He talks about, our, the minister declares fully about our redemption, about our rescue from the slave market of sin and from Satan's grasp, our, our grasp from our, our, talks about our reconciliation, our forgiveness, our justification, our adoption, our glorification. Paul says, I have not stopped from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Everything that God has for you and says about this salvation, I'm putting it out there, I'm telling you. We preach Christ, uh, sorry, we teach Christ. This is related to preaching, but apart from just proclaiming, it's actually about faithfully explaining the doctrines that support the gospel. Explaining things that people may not understand, instructing them how to live in the right way. It is connecting, you know, uh, the, the, the Bible's redemptive history. You know, when we, 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 it's explained to us what the scripture actually represents. Creation, 
the fall, uh, the redemption, and the new creation of God. We're like, we put it all together. Christ at the center of all those things. Seeing the Old Testament uh, in the light of the New Testament. Seeing all the types and figures of what Jesus is. And, and knowing what it, how it applies to our life, to our marriages, to our community, to our work. Showing that Jesus changes everything about our lives. And that's why 2 Timothy 2.15 says, This minister should show himself approved to God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. The third thing he does is that, the minister does, is that he admonishes, meaning he warns us in relation to Christ. This, this is about how um, telling people, telling people to live in accord with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, warning them about the implications of departing from it, giving practical advice, exercising correction, exercising discipline, and encouraging people to restoration. Now, what this means is that in the church, right, in the body of Christ, there will be some uncomfortable conversations, right? Uncomfortable conversations. We have to have uncomfortable conversations. When, when we, as the body of Christ, who are meant to honor the Lord, when we depart from his ways, the true minister of Jesus Christ will call you aside. And I'm not talking, just talking of your head pastor, lest you think that it's only one person we are called to, that can call you to account. Whether it's the head of your department, whether it's head of your unit, your gospel, uh, your gospel community leader, the head of women's groups, all those people who exercise one authority. And sometimes even our fellow believers, when we depart from the way of truth, we have to be ready when somebody calls us into account. We should welcome those sorts of uh, conversations. Right? Most of us, when we leave churches that maybe have been abusive or where they were legalistic, and you come to a church and you are happy, the, the songs are nice, we're joyful, we smile with each other, we sort of expect that, you know, that you will never be called out, right? It's like, I didn't know this joint was like that. It's like that, right? I didn't know. I thought you guys were cool people. Right? It turns out you're not so cool, right? Those conversations, are, we are meant to have them. We admonish, we warn about Christ. Like I said, the other things that a minister does, he gives oversight, uh, does administration of the church, people care and pray for us. People lead church planting efforts. People, uh, uh, ministers inspire mercy ministries. They live as models of holy, righteous living, and they spur us to love and to generosity. That is part of how uh, we're meant to live in the church. Now, there are some false models of ministry. Uh, you know, we, you know, whether you call it seeker-sensitive or needs-shaped ministry. You know, things that are focused on, for example, economic empowerment, personal growth, national development. Civic discourse, right? Or you want to win some culture or abortion issues and, you know, gay issues, gender issues, and things like that. And as a result of a vacuum in leadership, a lot of times, you know, you know ministers who know a bit of the word of God, who, who know about, about issues, and who have people that they care for, often feel compelled to step into those arenas and make the ministry about that. And that's eventually how we get... Um, you, know, you know, slogans and missions for churches like raising economic champions in Christ. Like building resilient entrepreneurs for the gospel. Like uh, building a community of business moguls on mission. That one, I feel like we could almost bring it in here. But we shan't. You know, this future of looking for business moguls. And the one I like best, gospel-centered global dominion ambassadors. They don't all come. I call them false uh, models. They don't always come from an evil heart. It's, there's just a need. There's just a vacuum. 
right? In a nation where there, we lack many good things, we have little educational opportunities, the number of people who end up going to school are, are minuscule, right? They can't get into schools. There's little upward mobility. Economic systems seem to be rigged if you're not connected. Um, and there's no credible safety net for most people. Those, they, that, that, they, you know, you always feel compelled, out of compassion sometimes, churches will begin, and ministers will begin to move into that space and then make the church about all that. But those are not the goals of the Christian ministry. The church, instead of the church taking on those roles, the church must encourage its members to be active and to be engaged on all those fronts. Build them up to maturity so that they can represent Christ properly in the world, in the city they live in. Then that city can flourish. Do you understand that? We cannot uh, uh, forget or compromise the goal of the ministry. The biblical ministry of the servants of Jesus must embrace his goals. That brings me to my third point, the nature of the minister. Now, certain things characterize the ways of a minister of the gospel. And three things according to the passage in uh, Colossians, I read uh, 124. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. So the first thing that characterizes ministry is suffering. And Paul is an example of those who, imitating Christ for the benefit of those under his care, right, suffer. But he doesn't suffer in the same sense as Jesus, not in an atoning sense. Christ Jesus has atoned for us. He's gone into heaven. He's mediating his rule through his spirit, the spirit of Christ indwelling us, and through people who are his arms and his legs and his mouth, under shepherd, so to speak. And he asked those people who do the work of the ministry to be ready to take up, as it were, the suffering he left behind. Take it up. And Paul, of course, was spoken of. Jesus went, or when uh, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, says, or when he was telling uh, about the, the, he was talking to the disciples about Paul, says, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And this suffering is part of his, or is in result of his service to the body of Christ. Not, not, he's serving the church, not himself, and so he's willing um, to take this upon himself. There's a sense in which the minister has a sense of stewardship and not one of ownership. In the last 30 years, what we have seen as ministers who have a sense of ownership of the church. You know, so pastor goes on the mountaintop, receives a, a, a vision and a call, comes down from the mountaintop, gathers people and says, this is the vision God has given me, come and join me in this. And he's the sole proprietor, the CEO, the loan prophet, you know, everything. As opposed to what we see in the Bible, there should be a plurality of elders. But if the heart and the mission are true, a minister can embrace physical sacrifice. He can embrace mental anguish. He can, you know, he can do all these things instead of seeking to, to cast himself into a new class of royalty. A class of royalty, you know, like when I was on campus, when I was on campus, if you went to visit the, the pastors of major, major, major churches, not my own, where, you know, where the likes of, you know, Olumide, he won't, he won't give, he won't give and he won't come and serve. Major coming, there were always people washing and cleaning and ironing and cooking. It was, it was hub. It was a hub of activity, you know, for them. You know, serving a pastor or a minister or, or being kind to them is not a bad thing, right? But it is the sense of entitlement. It is the sense of ownership. The sense in which I'm here to be served rather than to serve people. And that service, according to Paul, is marked by affliction, but also rejoicing. They're rejoicing in the mission. 
and in the future glory. He, like Jesus, Bible says in Hebrews 12, 2, we should look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The minister also looks at you and I presented before the Lord. He looks at, he looks at the times where he has counseled you many times about your, your, uh, your addiction to pornography. He's talked to you about your, how you talk to your wife, how you spend your money, how you don't have direction, how you sin egregiously, right? And instead of entering into despair, he sees you not as you are today, but as how Christ will present you. If he's patient with you, if he suffers, if he sacrifices, and if he stays with you, and he's energized to continue in that work. Amen. Amen. So he doesn't seek, if, but the problem is, if he's seeking uh, to overflow with wealth, or with greed again, he will destroy the credibility of the church. Um, like the 2010 or 2011 Forbes uh, top 10 list of wealthiest Nigerian pastors, and, you know, hundreds of millions and things like that. You know, that, 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 why you, why you can't, you couldn't say, oh, they stole money or they did this. The credibility of the church was short. And they're not focused on courting royalty, courting power, courting fame. Which then brings a compromise of the truth as you try to speak to people who, you know, you want to be in the in crowd. And that's the danger. The minister understands that his suffering can bring incomparable blessings to the world. When Paul, uh, who Jesus says, uh, you know, take courage that, you know, great will be your deal. Um, he says, I'll show you how much you suffer for my name. Paul submitted to the sufferings of Christ, and he found himself in chains. And what was the result for us? Four prison letters. Four prison letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, uh, from that first prison term. And without compromising the gospel, in Philippians uh, 4.22, he said, uh, they, uh, this person from the household of Caesar greets you. Really? Christians? Who, Christian and the emperor and the empire is uh, the arena and burning crosses, and lions, that was your portion. That was the portion of the Christian. You preached the gospel in Caesar's household. How? Because I was in chains. Because I was in chains. And we don't always see how God uses suffering to bring about his glory and his grace. The second thing is wisdom. Wisdom. Uh, Colossians 1.28b says, He is the one we proclaim, admonish, and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Doctrine of discernment. The, this, the, the, the minister of Christ Jesus understands the truth of Jesus as the center of God's revelation. He has become stable in those truths. He accepts and rejoices in that work. He has intellectual curiosity to probe and investigate his life using Scripture. He's built his life on modern Scripture. He has tasted of God's promises. He has tested God's commands, positive and negative, and he is, and he is rejoicing. I don't know how to put this off. Okay. And he's rejoicing at, and he's able to rejoice, right? He has tested God's promises. He has tested his commands. And therefore, he has what the Bible calls wisdom. He has applied the word of God over and over again. And therefore, he's able to deal with his congregation, with the church, with wisdom. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. We can't have uh, someone who calls himself as a minister of God and is anti-intellectual. He says, we ask, you know, you know, the, you know doctrine, you know, yeah, theology debates. Me, I'm not into all that. I'm into power. Power, you know. Uh, you know and that anti-intellectualism has crept up on us in the last 30 years, either because we had churches with seminaries that were putting out men who were not gospel-hearted, who violated their faith in every way, and now people say things like, oh, seminary is where, is where faith goes to die. 
I'm not saying everybody's going to go to seminary, but you have to be curious about the Word of God and about how to live life as a believer. And minister more so so that he can help people with wisdom. And if he admonishes us with wisdom, then he'll be gentle with us and he'll be able to show us how to live our lives in a way that glorifies God. Failing that, he'll deal with us with harshness. He'll deal with us uh, in ways that will be inimical to our Christian growth. He has to trust Jesus that his ministry will meet people at the point of their need. And the third one, grounding up, is hard work. Uh, Colossians 1.29 says, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I strenuously contend. The servant of Christ Jesus, the servant of the church, is not a lazy person. The ministry isn't for those who have failed in other disciplines or vocations. It is not the place to come and retire. Right? You think of that old uh, uh, British personage, person who retires from work in the city, moves to the rural area, he wears a collar, he visits his, his farming communities, misses this and misses that, and he attends, you know, they, they share pie. They share pie. None of you have shared pie with me. You know, they do all those things. Say, yeah, this thing is for people who have, who have retired. No, he says, it's not a place for, to rest from your labor. It's a place of strenuous contention, laborious struggling. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking that secular work requires discipline and diligence. But, you know, ecclesial work, church work. And it's not just to the lead pastor. To those who serve in any capacity, who is given any kind of work in the church. And we treat it as if when I get spare time on Friday evening or Saturday morning. Or no, sorry, if it's Sunday, Saturday evening, I'll start to prepare for it. Let us put in the discipline. Let us put in the diligence that is required to work. But the minister does this with Christ's own energy. His strength comes from complete trust and reliance of Jesus. Whether there are temptations, whether overwhelming circumstances, the trust in Christ's energy. And just as God supplies the wisdom for the work of the ministry, God also supplies strength to support his own goals. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is the exemplar for us, the one whom the Bible records went to the cross, fully relying on the power of God the Holy Spirit, fully relying on all of his Father's provision. That is the model for you and I, both as the congregation, the church, or as ministers, or wherever you're called to serve. None of us, neither ministers or congregation, are called to reach our goals in our own strength. We are not called to become mature by our own strength or by our own uh, struggling. As we are called to produce fruit of the Spirit, to build, these are some of the terms used in the Bible, build a spiritual edifice in our souls, finish your race, complete your course, anticipate eagerly the reunion that we're going to have with the groom. Those are the things that build up motivation in us. Looking forward to the time when we are presented in, in Christ Jesus, let that day not hold terror for any one of us. If you cannot think of time you die, Kind of think of the time where you will be presented and face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, or whatever the Bible calls it. If you cannot face it with confidence, it's time to begin your journey of confidence. It's time for you and I to begin to submit our hearts, submit our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes into Christ Jesus. Let us seek to continually put on his mind to crucify ourselves daily and to submit to his influence in our lives. 
this is a wonderful thing. God, on the back of the afflictions of Christ Jesus, made enemy Gentiles, his friends and his family. And then he takes us by the hands and he takes us to the Father and he says, here I am, along with the children that you have given me. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, awaiting the time when we'll be presented before the Lord. He indwells us, he reminds us of his suffering, but he reminds us more that he's coming again to receive us without spot and without blemish. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.